giving thanks to God for whom, from whom, through whom all things exist, and who in these last days has spoken to us through the Son, and who also has given to us the Spirit of Christ. Thank you, Pastor Gerald, again for this opportunity and to the elders also approving of it where I get to stand before the people of God and give the word of God. Thank you for trusting me in this way. Thank you also to my friend, Pastor Josh, for leading us in uh, worship. Uh, Thank you for leading us in a tremendous way. And thank you to all of you who have been uh, continually gracious and kind toward me and my family. Thank you so much for that kindness and that hospitality and all your words of encouragement uh, toward me. I love each one of you so much. Thank you for letting me serve um, you. I do not in any way take that opportunity lightly and so glad to be able to minister to you in some small way. So I'm excited to preach to you today and excited about our passage and that we're going through uh, the book of Hebrews. Let us... uh, quickly get to God's word, but let us start here by taking a moment to pray. Thank you for the word of God, Father, for giving us your word. We would not have known you if you had not revealed yourself to us through your word, for naturally we would not seek you. We would run from you because we would want to make gods in our own fashion. But you revealed yourself to us through your words that we could know you in truth. So thank you for giving us your word and giving us a church where the word of God is preached. Thank you for all of our mission partners. Thank you for those like the Lemonagers who are going out in a different way, answering your call to the Great Commission. Thank you that we get to partner with them in your intention to reach the whole earth with the word about Christ Would you bless that all of our partners would have all that they need to proclaim the gospel faithfully, including the Lemonagers? Would you give them strength today in all of their works that the gospel might powerfully be revealed through them? Here today among us, would you heal the sick and would you comfort them with the love of fellow church members? Would you give us greater ministry to imperfect families and to the unmarried and the not yet married? Would you give us the ability to serve in a greater way those who are not self-sufficient, those who are striving to keep their heads up? Would you bless that through the work here, we could participate in what you are also doing to reach a billion people who are calling on a God who is not God. Some are right here around us. There are more than six billion who are without Christ God we would ask that you would bless so that we could fulfill the mission of reaching Oak Park and Chicagoland and all around the world. But now serve us by the power of the Spirit. Build us up so that we may honor you and we love you more, that you may see us being holy in all of our ways and loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. So pour out your Spirit now that we may preach and hear and that we may be obedient to all you give to us today. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, which are each troubling because of their claim to be able to infuse grace into the sinner who works for them, the most troubling one of all to me is the last one, the seventh one, last rites, 
also known as extreme unction. It is a sacred sign performed for the mortally wounded, determinally ill, and those awaiting execution. In this, Ro this Roman ritual, a Catholic priest anoints the dying with oil, offers prayers for the dying one, and where possible, administers the Eucharist, the Romanized concept of the Lord's Supper. The priest also claims the ability to absolve the sinner of sin. In short, in this sacrament, a mere man is able to prepare the sinner to leave this world so that, supposedly, such a one has nothing of which to be afraid as he or she crosses the threshold from life to death. The thinking behind this sacrament is not unique to the Church of Rome. We who are Protestant do many things to avoid death the pain of death, and the uncertainty about what awaits us after death. Some people, maybe this includes you, refuse to plan their wills, for that forces them to think morbid thoughts. Instead, they say to the children something like this, I know you can handle this when I'm gone. But that often serves to cloak the related anxiety. Others will avoid any new ventures that involve air travel, even though every one of us knows that you're more likely to die in a car accident than in a plane crash. Still others of us shrink back from sharing our faith, where it would mean persecution and possibly martyrdom in places where there is no religious freedom. If we are going to be people who live godly, Christ-centered, holy, countercultural lives. We cannot let death bully us with concerns about death itself, the manner of our demise, and what lies just past the door after the afterlife or into the afterlife. Instead, we must be fully assured that Christ's work in the incarnation, on the cross, and in the resurrection means for us that there is Nothing to fear. When we turn to Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, and I'm going to focus on that part of Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, although I'll make some comments about 10 through 13. In writing to the Hebrew Christians in this passage, the author will give us four reasons why we have nothing to fear. The first reason is this. We have nothing to fear because Jesus has defeated the devil. In verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The author immediately recognizes a problem of human existence. Flesh and blood, or more literally, blood and flesh, in the original text, emphasizing the blood, is an idiom for being human. As human beings, we are mere blood and flesh. And once the blood is spilled, we are no more. This is only a problem for humans. God, being without blood and flesh, without a physical body, has no concern about dying. 
so that he could go through the same experience of death. God himself came in the incarnation, put on blood and flesh, and in doing so, completed the task of redemption that took the power of death away from the evil one. This verse addresses a few important theological issues for us as we look at death. First of all, our author is certain of the reality of the devil. The Greek we have for the devil, diabolos, translated to Latin as diabolos, from which you get the Spanish diabolos, and also the English derivative diabolical, we're very familiar with this term, is a word often used in the Greek Old Testament for the Hebrew satan, the word for Satan. It refers to that same one who would have taken Job's life if God had not said, you may not touch him. He is the one who deceived Eve knowing that death awaited her if she partook of the fruit of the tree. Jesus describes this same one in John 8 as a murderer from the beginning. So the reality of this completely evil being was without question. Apparently also, when a person is in disobedience to the gospel, the devil has some real ability to use death as a means to his end, for the passage also says he has the power of death. What the devil, in fact, has is a limited and usurped power. It has limitations because, as seen in the case of Job, God alone is the one with the power to create life and to return men to dust. The Lord is the one who appointed all the days of our lives before even one of them came into existence, Psalm 39 says. It is also usurped in that man in the garden handed over present and mediatorial dominion of the earth to the evil one. And Romans 5 says that death entered with man's disobedience. The evil one uses that power to destroy the lives of the wicked. A second theological issue concerns the incarnation. Jesus taking on human flesh has been a problem since the time of the second century heretic Marcion. Marcion, following Greek thought, could not believe in a God who could take on the filth of matter and the material. However, it is very clear from this passage that Jesus partook in humanity without becoming two separate Christs, one that is human and one that is divine, as the 5th century heretic Nestorius also taught. It is important to see the relationship between Christ taking on real flesh and his defeat of the devil. As the second century African theologian Tertullian said, quote, if Christ being of the flesh is discovered to be a lie, it follows that all things which were done by the flesh of Christ were done untruly. If with a touch or by being touched, he freed anyone from disease, Whatever was done by any bodily act cannot be believed to have been done truly in the absence of all reality in body itself. On this principle too, the suffering of Christ will be found not to warrant faith in him. For he suffered nothing who did not truly suffer, and a phantom could not truly suffer, unquote. 
Because Christ took on a body, he could go to the cross and die. By dying and then rising again from the dead, he destroyed or he rendered powerless the devil by taking away his tool. New Testament scholar J. Ramsey Michaels says, quote, death is the rebel's henchman who bludgeons humanity into submission, unquote. Holding death in his hand, the devil could say to humanity, you better obey me rather than God or I will kill you. I will remove you from existence. But now it is not so with Christ coming into the world. Christ in his body took everything the devil could throw at him with death. In the grace of his dying for sin, he showed death who is both wrestling death right out of the hand of our adversary when he also rose again from the dead. Thus the devil, through Christ's humanity, has no power over those with blood and flesh. He is a wounded enemy who cannot ultimately prevail over believers. He still attacks and seeks our ruin, but we have nothing to fear from him because his power to destroy us by death has been taken away. Second, we have nothing to fear because Jesus in identifying with us, delivers us from the fear of death. Jesus delivers us. He says in verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He sets us free from a controlling state or entity, O'Brien says in his commentary. He sets free those who are slaves to the fear of death. The fear of dying controls the lives of unbelievers so as to enslave them to actions that seek to escape death and how one might die. We see this all around us. For example, you remember back just a little more than a half decade ago, both the captain of the sinking Costa Concordia in 2012 and the captain of the sinking South Korean ferry, the MV Seawall, in 2014 jumped off their vessels before the passengers in order to make sure they kept their lives even if others perished. <clears throat> in a very different sense, everyone who tries to leave a legacy of their own greatness, like those who run for office of mayor of a major metropolitan city or those who try to run for governor, in part are trying to keep themselves from being erased completely by death. Some fear that death will make nothing of them without great accomplishments. Rare are those like the missionary John Allen Chaw, who last November would risk his life to reach and unreach people with the gospel. Or like medical missionaries Nancy Wrightbowl and Dr. Kent Brantley who stayed at their post in the face of the West African Ebola epidemic in 2014 so that they could serve the dying even if it meant losing their own lives. On the idea of escaping death, Pastor Richard Phillips writes, how much of our busyness, our frenzy for entertainment is mainly an attempt to divert our gaze from the showdown, death cast over our lives. Death is not merely an event that awaits us, but a power that rules us now. So Phillips go on, goes on to say, it is the leaven of futility that permeates all our achievements and denies our souls peace and contentment. In other words, 
Phillips is saying, death is somehow pulling our strings in life. Jesus, however, frees us from the fear of death so that we do not spend the rest of our lives making decisions based on avoiding the pains associated with death. Uniquely, Jesus does not do this for angels, our passage tells us, but only for those described as the offspring of Abraham. When angels rebelled against the Lord, there was no second chance for salvation. 2 Peter 2 tells us they are confined to a special hell called Tartarus. Rebellious angels were condemned forever with no second chance, but the offspring of Abraham, Jesus, frees. When one thinks of the offspring of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael are the first that come to mind. The Lord separated Isaac from Ishmael so that the promises to Abraham would come by distinction to Isaac or would come by selection or they would come by election. Those who follow in the faith of Abraham are also his offspring. All who have placed their faith in Christ are his spiritual offspring. We believe by virtue of the Lord freely choosing us to be his own from all eternity. For us, Christ went to the cross, died, and rendered death powerless over those who are his own. So yes, we all will die. But death will not be a scary event for us. Christ's death for us makes our death a short stop on the way to heaven. For Christ helps us in the text. It literally says he takes hold of us to carry us all the way to glory. In the grace of God, I have celebrated college graduations for Two of my children, my two oldest children, now, parentheses, hallelujah goes right here for all of you paying for college. You understand why I'm very excited about that. Although it is almost 22 years ago since the oldest one started school, I still have memories of what each of my children's first venture into school was like. You all know how it is the very first day of school for your pre-kindergartner or your kindergartner going outside of the home for the first time. The child is somewhat timid about what to expect as the day approaches. The night before, while laying out clothes for the new venture, the child has all sorts of questions about the teacher and what the students will do in class and when he or she will get to eat out of that new Chicago Bears lunchbox. As a student approaches the bus stop or the classroom or the school, timidity turns into a clinging to mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or the older sibling that is taking the child to the school. That is, until another child comes along, introduces himself or herself, then grabs your child and says, come on. And then after, come on. There's no stopping your child or grandchild from going for it all the way until we get across the graduation stage. What that second child did is take hold of your child so they both could enjoy that fearful thing called school together. 
in the same way. Jesus sees us doing all sorts of things to keep from getting to death as it approaches. He sees us clinging to the things of this life, making decisions like fearful children. Having already gone to the other side with complete victory, he grabs the hands of his elect and he says, come on, trust me, there will be nothing of which to be afraid because Jesus has defeated the fear of death. Third, in these verses, we learn that Jesus has diffused the divine wrath. There is nothing to fear because Jesus has diffused the divine wrath. It says down in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. By coming in a body and experiencing the same things we are experiencing, the text says, in every respect, Jesus takes on another role, that of the high priest. Priests in the Old Testament system acted as mediators. They acted as go-betweens between God and the people of God. No one could approach God on his own terms because of sin. God could not approach the people because God is holy. The priest through the sacrificial system, took the people to God and allowed God to come down to his people. The blood or the deaths of goats and bulls through the sacrificial system in the place of people made this possible. The high priest, however, had one unique duty. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he took blood into the Holy of Holies, to the mercy seat, atop the Ark of the Covenant, in order to atone for the sins of Israel. If God accepted the sacrifice of the one goat on behalf of Israel, the other goat on which the sins of Israel were laid, symbolically, was spared and would not return. In this way, God signaled that his wrath against the people was satisfied. In the wake of the failure of the people to keep the Old Testament system and laws, God revealed his way for people to have a permanent approach to God. Jesus, by coming and experiencing the things in the human life and in going to the crucifixion, took the role of the high priest, this being the first use of high priest for Jesus in the book of Hebrews. It is Jesus who would take sinful humanity to God through his own sacrificial blood shed in his death for us. It is he who would bring the holy God down to man. Christ did this by making propitiation for the sins of the people. In some translations, you have the word expiate or expiation indicating a removal of sin. Others have the translation atone or atonement in, uh, indicating a cover of sin. But the word actually is a word for mercy seat, rep uh, referencing the place in the Holy of Holies above the ark, behind the cherubim wings, where God would be present, where blood was offered. Jesus, the Hebrew writer is saying, is that mercy seat where God covers and removes sin because his wrath has been satisfied. Jesus is the great wrath satisfier of God. He takes care of the real problem we face at death. That is 
the judgment of our sins. Beautifully, Jesus takes care of death itself. Jesus takes care of the fear of death. And now Jesus takes care of the problem of judgment after death for those who have trusted in him. This is where the high priest Jesus does what no priest of Rome or of Nashville, for those of you following my reference, can do. No man sitting in a confessional behind a darkened screen can remove sin and satisfy the wrath of God. Neither does he have the authority to do so. No pastor can do it beside your hospital bedside. A choice to put trust in man for what he cannot do when you should be trusting Christ's work alone in salvation is just not wise. Yet we understand that Jesus is not a mechanical, detached priest. We are brothers, the passage says, because he experienced this life and death in his priesthood. He therefore is merciful and faithful. He is merciful Something that is said of no Old Testament priest. In the Old Testament, God is the one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is how he reveals himself to Moses. And it is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. What Jesus does is he takes that Old Testament divinity, merciful and gracious, and he sticks it in to the role of the high priesthood, understanding what you and I go through in this life. There is nothing, categorically speaking, that we go through that he himself has not experienced or does not understand. He also He's faithful in his priesthood such that death and sin have no chance of getting us. Human priests take days off and sin themselves even as we do as pastors. Work for them and us can become routine or happenstance, but not so for Jesus. Jesus is faithful. He is always on the job. And though mercy and faithfulness are for the benefit of the believer, Jesus' service was for God God is the one with the plan to send Jesus to satisfy his wrath. God is the one who wants to satisfy his wrath in Jesus rather than satisfy it on you or I. Yet while Jesus was serving God, we are the ones who receive the mercy. Without Jesus, it would be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God for judgment. For God is an all-consuming fire, this book will also reveal, who intends to rip his enemies limb from limb as he casts them into an everlasting judgment. What Jesus did for us in Christmas and in Easter, which will be here in a few short weeks, is to diffuse the divine wrath so that we have nothing to fear when judgment time comes. Finally, we have nothing to fear because Jesus diverts our temptation to desertion. He diverts our temptation to desertion. It says in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The Hebrew Christians faced real persecution they were tempted to desert the faith and leave Christ for Judaism. They were tempted to leave Jesus because to follow him meant martyrdom. 
However, because Jesus took every temptation to the full extent, enduring it without giving in, he understands temptations better than any of us. Because he endured the cross with our sin and God's wrath upon him, he knows death better than any of us. Thus, when the Christian life gets to be too hard, that is, when submission becomes too much, when pain becomes too strong, when waiting seems too long, when the love that we are giving out is not being returned, it is not then time to throw in the towel and give up on the faithful God. It is not then time to decide, I'm not going back to church. God is just a spoof. I'm done with all that religious stuff. Christianity does not work for me. No. Instead, it is then time to run to God. It is time to run to Jesus who the text says is able. There is an old African-American hymn I used to sing in churches where I grew up and where I served as a pastor, simply called, He is Able. And it just has these words to it. He is able. 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 God is able to carry you through. And it really is just that simple. God, Jesus, the absolutely holy and powerful God who has come in the flesh for our sakes is able to see you and I through every challenge because he has defamed death for us. And if he has defamed death, he can take on anything else that you and I face in this life. Well, I'm done here. Let me go back a few more years in here since I'm, being, uh, since I'm going back for some of my uh, illustration because there are some good ones in, in history and I just, you know, haven't been able to find one that was more appropriate here. So let me go back a little bit. Some of you will remember in the 2012 presidential campaign, Hillary Rawson, a Democratic strategist, chastened Mitt Romney for saying that his wife had relayed to him economic concerns for women all around the country. Rawson simply said, Ann Romney has never worked a day in her life. While the comments were blown out of proportion as an attack against stay-home wives and moms, the real point was actually very evident. What Rawson was saying is that there is no way Ann Romney could understand the impact of a poor economy on anyone having never experienced it herself. Ann Romney never had to make a choice between paying for a child's tuition and getting personal medical care. Ann Romney never waited for another payday to purchase a car or to have an appliance repaired. Ann Romney never worried about becoming a homeowner or possibly losing her home. Ann Romney never had a concern about having enough pension to survive all of her retirement years. Ann Romney, therefore, had no idea of the concerns of the average American woman and what that woman would have held about the economy because Anne had never experienced such concerns. In contrast to Anne Romney, Jesus, our great high priest, in becoming incarnate, has walked in this world and experienced every sort of fearful temptation you and I can face. In the face of the most fearful thing of all, the cross for our sins, he said to his father, if this cup could pass from me, 
He looked at death on the cross and was reasoning to himself, the Father's wrath is very terrifying. Yet, he still went to the cross on our behalf with joy. He conquered death and he rose again from the dead so that our great high priest Jesus could say to you and I, you have nothing to fear. Let us pray. Father, we bless you for your love toward us. And thank you that you have removed the fear of the most fearful thing. Death, judgment, and all the things that attend. Our frenzied focus on cheap entertainment so our minds won't think of our own tour toward the grave our detouring away from anything that would make us stand out for Christ, where it would mean that the world would turn its anger on us. Thank you that you went down in the grave, that you defeated death, that you rose again, O oh God, that you are seated at the right hand and you have promised to come and get your own. Bless that we would stand on the hope, the sure hope, that our God has defeated the devil and death and will get us to make us your own forever. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.